0: Great. Thanks, Hannah. We'll get to um, most of that. We'll even get to the weird stuff about the Antichrist um, in just a minute. But I was, as we were singing uh, that song based on Psalm 16, I was really struck by the line in there that um, basically it says uh, everything will be all right. Um, and uh, maybe that's a little reggae-ish. I don't know, but. Um, but I was really struck by that, and so I, I looked up uh, Psalm 16, and I, I think the I could be wrong, but I think the verse that that line is based on is Psalm 16 verse eight: uh, "I keep my eyes always on the Lord with him at my right hand, I will not be shaken um, and i don 't know if you need to hear the news that whatever's going on you 'll be all right uh, if you need to hear that today um, but maybe that's God's word for you today. Maybe you don't need to listen to the sermon about the Antichrist, but maybe you just need to know today um, that with God at your right hand, you will not be shaken. Everything will be all right. Um, so let me pray, and then we'll dive into this passage. Father, thank you so much for your word. And uh, Lord, thank you that it teaches us and instructs us. And, and actually, Lord, your word says that if we uh, look into it, if we study it, if we meditate on it, it actually fills us with joy. And so, Lord, I pray that we would have that joy today. In your son's name, amen. One of my all-time favorite movies uh, is a movie from the early 1980s called The Elephant Man. Has anybody seen this movie? Um, you said that with such, like, warmth because it is a warm-hearted movie. And it, it if you don't cry when watching The Elephant Man, you're not a human being. So. Um, but the story, it's its based on a true story about a real man who lived, um, and there's some confusion. Is his name Joseph Merrick or John Merrick or both? But whatever, it doesn't matter. His last name is Merrick. And uh, he had this condition that basically he had these growths all over his body. So I believe it was the whole left side of his body. He had growths on his arm and on his leg. And then he had all these growths on his head. So his head was, you know, two times the size of a normal head. And he actually struggled to breathe, struggled to to speak because of these growths that were that were all over his his face. And he was uh, exploited most of his life. Uh, he was taken and was part of a sideshow and a circus and all these horrible things that happened to him. And one day he meets a doctor um, named Dr. Doctor Treves. I don't know if that's his real name, but that's what they call him in the movie. And this doctor takes him in, and he begins to show him love. He begins to care for him. He begins to look after him. And, and at one point... Um, the Elephant Man, uh, Joseph Merrick, he, he's kind of being bothered by some of the testing and things that's going on. And so he leaves, and um, and eventually he's reconciled with, with Dr. Treves, and he comes back in. And Dr. Treves, this is in the film, I don't think this actual, actually happened, but in the film he's taking him to the opera in London. And so he buys the Elephant Man a tuxedo, and he takes him to the opera. And, and there's a, a line here that I quote almost every single day to Emmy. He puts on uh, his tuxedo. Um, and he says to, to Dr. Treves, uh, so how do I look? And Dr. Treves says, you look absolutely splendid. You'll not look out of place at all. I said it to Emmy almost every morning, so how do I look? And she says to me, you look absolutely splendid. You won't look out of place at all. And not long after that, in that same scene, uh, Dr. Treves apologizes to him for all the horrible things that's happened to him uh, while he was caring for him and looking after him. And the elephant man says back to Dr. Treves, uh, he says, uh, Dr. Treves, do not worry. I am happy every hour of the day. My life is full because I know that I am loved. It's a great scene. It's great. It's kind of the climax of the film. And the part of the Bible that we're looking at today, the Apostle John talks about receiving a love like that. That there's a love that if you and I receive it, to use the language of the elephant man, we can be happy every hour of the day. Our lives can be full. to use the language of the Bible, we can have joy. Joy because we know that we're loved. And so, so far as we've looked at the book of 1 John, we've talked each week about something we saw in the first four verses way back in chapter one, and that's what we've been calling the fellowship triangle. So we can put that up on the screen there. There's the fellowship triangle. Um, Can we put that up, Lance? Thanks. Uh, So there it is. Um, And what that says is if these relationships are intact, you know, relationship between me and God, between you and God, between me and you, then what John says, what flows out of that is joy. He actually says that if these relationships are intact, then he says, your joy can be complete. Your joy can be full is the the image there. And uh, so far what John's been talking about is really the the sort of upward arrow between you and God and me and God and, and us loving God. But now all of a sudden, here in chapter three, verse one, like a dam that's burst, he begins to talk about God's love for us. And if you're a Christian, I've noticed something lately. If you're a Christian, I think uh, the fact that God loves you, the fact that God loves me, I actually think it's become the most forgotten fact of your faith. It's actually a doctrine that I think we forget about day by day by day, maybe even hour by hour. Uh, I know that's true of me. You know, I haven't forgotten the Trinity. Like, that one doesn't leak out of my brain. Uh, I haven't forgotten the doctrine of the church. I haven't forgotten, you know, the doctrine of scripture, like what the Bible is. I haven't forgotten those things. But the one fact, the one doctrine that always seems to just leak out of my brain and my heart, almost like I never knew it, is the doctrine of God's love, of his love for me. And do you know how I know that that's true? Uh, I complain and I grumble and I moan, and I whine. But even though through the love of God, and as a result of God's love for me, I've been blessed beyond all measure. You know, I have a home, and I have food, and I have a bed, and I have a family, and I have friends. And so not only do I have all the necessities of life, I have all those things. I have beyond the necessities of life. I have exceedingly beyond the necessities of life. And yet, I still complain about what I don't have, or I still complain about the things that I do have, not like living up to what I think they should be. And what that tells me is that I have forgotten what it says in 1 John 3, verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. And I forget that. I've already forgotten it today. I've already complained today. It's already happened. And is that anyone else, or is that just me? Well, John chapter one, uh, or First John chapter three, verses one to three, it's John's elephant man moment, um, and it should be that for you and I. That you know we've had this whole long passage read, and we'll see how all that plays in. But the key that unlocks all of this is First John chapter three, verses one to three. Because what it shows us is that there is a love that if you know it, if you experience it, actually if you remember it, you can be filled with joy. And so we're going to look at that love. That's point one, what that love is. And then secondly, we'll look at where it's found. Thirdly, what it does. And then fourth, we'll talk about how do you enjoy it? How do you actually enjoy that love? So first, let's look at the love itself, the love of God. And so far in this letter, John's been, been dealing with a lot of facts, You know, he's given some commands and some advice. uh, But here in these verses, the tone changes. He he actually begins to emote. And you see that um, in the kind of language that he uses. And our translators, if you look closely, they've actually helped us see this. And that they put two, not just one, two exclamation points in verse one. You know, some of you are the people that when you write an email, every sentence has an exclamation point at the end of it. It's not that you're that excited. Maybe you are. I don't know. Um, but John, the translators put two exclamation points in verse one. And then do you see that first phrase there at the beginning? It says, see what great. You see that, those three words, see what great. Uh, the literal translation of those three words, and I understand why he, they didn't translate it this way. The literal translation is, of what country? Of what country? That's the literal translation of that. And so you could read that is, of what country is the love the Father has lavished on us? It's a weird way to say it. But what it's getting at is there isn't a love like this anywhere else in the world. They don't love like this in America. They don't love like this in India or England or Kenya or Korea. They don't even love like this in Canada. I love those like slow burn ones. Those are my favorite. The love That God the Father has for us, what this is saying is it's not of any country. It doesn't come from anywhere here on earth. It's otherworldly. There's not a love like this emanating from any person in any country on earth. This love is unique, it is otherworldly, and it is of God the Father himself and himself alone. You see how he's emoting? Of what country? Where does this love come from? And not only does God love us with that love, look at the next word used to describe the love we receive from God the Father. It says he lavished it on us. And that's the word to bestow. It's the word to supply. It's, it's a word that is literally used to talk about giving a present. Um, it's, again, this, this is a very odd phrase, actually, um, in John's writing. Um, because, you know, you wouldn't typically say that you, when you love someone, you wouldn't typically say, oh, I bestow my love upon you. That is not what I say to Emmy when we wake up in the morning. Uh, we, don't, we don't say it because, it's, A, it's weird. It's a weird way to say things. But also, it means to present something to someone in an event. And so we use that word, you know, when, uh, it gets used like, you know, we bestow upon you the key to the city. Or we bestow upon you this master's degree. Um, to bestow something is to present someone with something that when they receive it, it impacts their entire life. And so it's not typically how we talk about love, like it's a possession presented to someone. And I said earlier, just a minute ago, that you know I don't say that to Emmy. I don't say to her, I bestow my love upon you, except there was one time when I did. There, was, there is one place where we do that, and that's in marriage. That marriage is the joining together of two people under the authority of God and the state. And those two people are uniting their lives together in every single way. So they're uniting their lives materially, It means all their possessions are now shared. They're uniting emotionally, physically, spiritually, in every aspect of who they are, they are uniting one another. And we talked about this last week, that marriage is a union where everything that belongs to the groom now belongs to the bride, and everything that belongs to the bride now belongs to the groom. And actually, what you're doing in that ceremony, there are several of you who are getting married imminently, and what you're doing in that ceremony is you are bestowing your love on the other person. You are giving them, you are presenting to them your love in such a way that it permanently changes their life. And this is what John is saying when he says, of what country is the love the Father has bestowed upon us? God the Father has presented to us a love that is unlike any other love on this planet that has permanently changed our lives for the good. And this is what causes John's heart to sing. This is why he uses weird phrases, because he can't express it in any other way. The emotion pours out of him in the way that he expresses this. And the best the translators of the NIV can do is give you a couple of exclamation points. And of course, John, John, John's heart does sing, because to be loved like that is to change everything about you. To actually be loved like that is to change everything about you because the kind of love that John is talking about here is the love that is to be known fully and yet loved anyway. But what does that mean, to be known fully and yet loved anyway? Well, think about all that John's talked about in this letter so far. You know, What's the main image he's used so far? Light and darkness. Now, there are all kinds of things, John says, that you and I do in the darkness And those are the things that the Bible calls sin. The things that we do that we hope nobody ever finds out about. You know, we don't want anybody to know because we're ashamed of them. We're ashamed of those thoughts. We're ashamed of those things that we said. We're ashamed of those deeds that we did, those actions that we partook in, or those things that we didn't do that we knew we should have done. And what John has been saying is that to be a Christian is to come out of the darkness into the light It's to have all of those things done in the darkness exposed to be seen, for God to see them, and yet for God to love you anyway. That those who humbly step out of the darkness bring all their brokenness to God in confession. John said, God is faithful and just, and he will forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. That's the love of God. That's of what country? the love that's been lavished on us, bestowed upon us. And yet, for those of us who've received this love, this is the love that we forget. And it's the forgetting of this love that is the cause of our complaining, of our lack of kindness, our unkindness sometimes, our lack of joy it's when we forget that love that all those things that we do in the darkness come rushing back in. Now think about it this way. Those of you who are married, however frustrating your spouse may be, your spouse is an expression, a gift, a bestowal of God's love for you. Or think about your job. No matter how exciting or dull or excruciating at times it may be, The work that you have been given to do, the paycheck that comes with it, no matter how large or small, is a bestowal of God's love for you. That's an expression of his love, his loving provision for you. Think about your home, whether you rent it, whether you own it, no matter how exquisite or how dreary it may be, maybe just how ordinary it is. The fact that you have one is God's bestowal of his love for you. you Think about your friendships. Think about your lunch today. All of that is a bestowal of God's love for you. That's an expression of his love for you. And then undergirding all of that, if you're a Christian... In other words, to be called God's child, which is to have your sins forgiven and your slate wiped clean, that is God's ultimate bestowal of his love for you. There is no expression of love. That's why it's from not, this, not any country. There is no love like that. That's his ultimate bestowal of love for you. And yet this is what we forget. This is the truth that we forget almost daily, hourly, minute by minute, that God has lavished his extraordinary otherworldly love on us. And then this is the reason why we lack joy. It's because we forget the love of God. A number of years ago, we, um, you know, I, I talk all the time about all these places that we visited in Europe. It's not because we, like, fly from here over there. We used to live there, so it was easy to do these things. So please don't think that we're, you know, creating a huge carbon footprint um, and we were we went to a conference one time in Poland, in Krakow, and not far from Krakow is Auschwitz. And Auschwitz is, as you probably know, one of the worst concentration camps uh, that the Nazis had. They, they killed thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Jews there. And we went to go and visit this, um, and it was, uh, there, there really aren't words to describe what it was. Because you walk through and then, you know, Behind glass, they have, it's, it's really sick to even think about, piles of hair, and piles of glasses, and piles of shoes, and then, then you go to another part, and you walk through uh, the quote-unquote living quarters, and you see what passed as a bed, and you see what passed as, as a, a place for people to live, and, and then you, you actually go into, so there's one of the gas chambers that's still there, and you go into the gas chamber, and you see where thousands upon thousands of people took their last breath. And it was moving, and it was life-changing to go there and to experience it. And um, it didn't even strike me until, I Emmy and I got home a couple of days later, and we're in our very nice, comfortable apartment where we lived. And we lay down to bed, and I just started weeping. Uh, there are very, very few times in my life where I've wept, and I started weeping. And I, I couldn't even say to Emmy what was going on, but I just, I was thinking to myself, nobody's ever tried to take my bed away from me. No one's ever tried to take my home from me. No one's ever tried to take my family or my beliefs away from me. No one's ever done that. And I, and I sort of vowed to myself, I'm like, I'm going to stop complaining about stuff. I'm going like, to enjoy all that God's given me. But do you know what happened? A week goes by and I forgot. I forgot. That's, that's what I think happens, is that we forget we forget the love of God that is lavished on us. And that's why we don't have joy, and that's why we complain, and that's why that's why we fall back into the darkness. So what are we to do? What do we do with that? Um, where do we find this love? And what does the love do for us? And, and then how do we consistently enjoy it and not forget it? These are our next three points, and I'm going to, Move through them somewhat quickly. Uh, where is love found? And to see where love is found, we have to go back to the start of our reading today, back to chapter 2, verse 18, and this is all the stuff about the Antichrist. So here we go. This is fun. Um, I have to confess, talking about the Antichrist is a great topic for the day before Halloween, because tomorrow a bunch of little Antichrists in their costume are going to be running up and down the street, and their goblin and ghoul costumes asking for candy, and their parents are going to be like, you are the Antichrist, Um, because you've had too much candy. Um, That's not at all what John's talking about. (laughs) That's not even close to what John's talking about, actually. Um, And thanks to some very famous popular fiction that's been written over the past half century, we read this word antichrist, and we think of some sort of red-eyed, scaly monster chasing us down like in a horror film, but that's not even close to what John's talking about here. John's actually talking about something far more ordinary, Um, it's less gruesome, but more ordinary. And in fact, the way John talks about it is actually more scary, though, than than a horror film. Because in verses 18 to 21, he's talking about a group of people who've entered into the church where he's writing this letter to. They've entered into this church, and they're trying to convince people to leave the church, to leave Christianity entirely. And they're doing that with a particular message. and, And it actually says down in verse 26, specifically, these people are trying to lead you astray. So they've actually entered into the church and they're trying to do that. And then the message that they're using to lead people astray is this. Look at chapter 2, verse 22. It says, who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. And so an Antichrist is anyone who is anti, who is against, who is opposed to, who is suppressing Christ. And so when John is talking about an antichrist, the, the image is of a persuasive person who not only denies Christ, but attempts to persuade others to deny him, too. That's an antichrist. Now, to be clear, this is a very important aside that I need to make. If you're here and you're not a Christian, John is not calling you an antichrist. An antichrist is not simply a person who doesn't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. So if, if that's you, you're not an antichrist. It's okay. It's <laughs> okay. An antichrist is very specifically a person who enters into a Christian church with a specific goal of leading the Christians in that church astray from their beliefs. Try and get them to deny Jesus Christ. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, as long as you're not doing that, you're, you're very welcome here. Uh, you're welcome to be here. We're glad you're here. You're welcome anytime. You're, you're not an antichrist. If you were, I would tell you, okay? Uh, and to the best of my knowledge, there are no Antichrist here in this church. Now, what's the point of John saying all this? Why go off on such a seemingly strange tangent about the antichrist? Well, first of all, there's actually people that were going around uh, in his, this church when John wrote this letter. Um, and if there were some then, that means there's, there are some today, and so we need to be aware of that. But more than that, look at verse 23. He says, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father too. And then ultimately, verse 25, the one who has the Son has the promise of eternal life. And so put that another way. Whoever has the Son, Jesus Christ, has received the love of God. Put that one one more way. way. The way to the love of God, the way to receive that love of God, is through Jesus Christ, God the Son. And so he's concerned that people would deny Jesus Christ, because if you deny Jesus Christ, if you don't have Jesus Christ, you can't have God the Father, and therefore you can't have his love. And that's the point that he's trying to make, that the bestowed love of God is only available through Jesus Christ himself. And yeah, of course, a, a person is constantly receiving the general love of God, you know, the warmth of the sun, the sweetness of a piece of fruit, the love of your family. All of these are ways that we receive the general love of God, theologians call that common grace. Everybody gets common grace. But to receive this specific bestowed, lavished, otherworldly love of God that makes us his son or daughter is only through Jesus Christ, God the Son. And this is why John is so concerned. Because their message is to deny Christ altogether. And for anyone to deny Christ is to deny the the bestowed, specific, special love of God for you. And this, John thinks, is extremely important because verse 3, look at what God's love does. Look at what it accomplishes. It makes you and I God's son or daughter. Back to chapter 3, verse 1, it says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. And when it says that, the word that, you see that, that word that there? And it's actually that we should be called children of God. It's actually in order that. In order that we should be called children of God. And so God lavished, he bestowed his otherworldly love on us in order that we should be called children of God. And look closely in these verses at what that love does for us. Uh, There's three things that receiving the bestowed love of God does for us. And the first is that it makes Jesus' Father our Father. In a sense, John actually repeats here uh, what he says in verse 1. He says, we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Uh, But look closely, it's not just repetition. He actually states two distinct things. First, he says that that we should be called children of God, and that's talking about adoption. It's talking about our legal status, talking about a change of name. In other words, to become a Christian is to go from being outside the family of God, a child of the world, an orphan, so to speak, to being called, to being declared a child of God, to taking on his name. Jesus said to God the Father back in John 17, he says, Father, I want you to love them just as you loved me. And what was that love? This is so wonderful, John 17, 10. You can put this on the screen. What is the love that Jesus talks about? He literally says it. He says, all I have is yours and all you have is mine. And that's what it is to be truly loved, to be truly unified, that all I have is yours and all you have is mine, meaning God becomes our father. We become his son or daughter, and all that is his becomes ours, and all that is ours becomes his. And what Jesus is saying with this is, I want you to to wipe out their sins, to forgive them of everything. I want you to receive them into your household as if they are me. This is what it means to be called a child of God but it goes further than that, and that's where the repetition comes in, because he says, and again, with an exclamation point, he says, and that is what we are. And so we're not just called children of God, we are children of God. We're not just given the status, we're given the nature. And the only way to put that is we're given the family likeness. We actually begin to become like God in his character. In other words, people know that we belong to God because we're like him. And this is what it's getting at in the rest of verse one. He states it in the negative, but what he's saying there in the rest of verse one, you know, he says, uh, people didn't know you because they don't know God. He's saying the reason people don't know you're a child of God is because they don't know him. But if they did know God, then they would see the family likeness in you. They would say, "This, this person is a child of God because of the likeness, because of how much they're like him. And so that's the first thing the bestowed love of God does for us. It makes us God's son or daughter to the extent that, that we are his children and we bear the family likeness. But secondly, it also gives us the promise of eternal life. And I'm only going to quickly skim over this. But look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 24. It says, as for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will also remain in the Son and in the Father. And then this is the key, verse 25. And this is what he promised us. Eternal life. And so to receive the the otherworldly bestowed love of God means that when God in his love makes a promise, he keeps it. And that promise is eternal life. Eternal fellowship with God. With one another. Look Look at our triangle again. What this is talking about here is this eternal joy. That after this life, we enter into the next, in the the new heavens, and the new earth, and there is perfect fellowship between me and God, perfect fellowship between me and you, perfect fellowship between you and God, which means perfect eternal joy. That's what we experience for all of eternity. And so that's the second thing the otherworldly bestowed love of God does for us. And then thirdly, again briefly, it purifies us as Jesus is pure. And verses 4, 5, and 6, it tells us what sin is. It says that sin is lawlessness. So sin is any time we obey ourselves rather than God. And then it tells us where sin isn't. In verse 5, it says, in him, speaking of Christ, in him there is no sin. There's no sin whatsoever in Christ. And so therefore, it tells us what sin does. It separates us from Jesus Christ. End of verse 6 in chapter 3, no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. But then it also tells us why sin is. Sin is a failure to abide in Christ. Look at at this, verse 6. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. And the word therefore lives in, that's the word abide. It's the word for living. It's the word for dwelling. Put that in the way we started talking about this in the beginning. The reason that we sin, if you ever were wondering, why do you sin? If you became a Christian, if Christ is living in you, you ever wonder why you sin? Here, John tells us, it's we've forgotten that we abide in Christ and he in us. We've forgotten to remember the presence of Jesus is with us. And when his presence is with us, it makes it nearly impossible to sin. And what does the love of God lavish on us do for those of us who sin and yet turn to Christ for forgiveness? Again, chapter three, verse two, dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. The one who looks to Jesus the one who looks to Jesus, it says, when he appears, will be like him. We'll be purified just as he is pure. This is what the love of God lavished on us does. It makes Jesus' father our father. It gives us the promise of eternal life. And it purifies us just as Jesus is pure. So how then do you get this love? How do you enjoy this love? Here's our last point. Um, I told Emmy yesterday, I wasn't going to share this story, but now I am. Um, our first anniversary, um, we, we do this thing every year on our anniversary. We, we go away. We do something together. Our first anniversary, we were pretty poor. Um, and so the best I could do was like a quasi-nice hotel in downtown Chicago where we were living. It was, it was the Sheridan, so it wasn't, it wasn't like the Waldorf. It was just like a middle-of-the-road hotel. That was the best we could do. And one night, that was all we could afford. And so I booked one night in this hotel, and we get there and we tell the person we're checking in, uh, this is our first anniversary. And she's like, oh, congratulations, that's amazing. Let me do something for you guys. I'm gonna upgrade you to this nicer room. And anybody who stays on, you know, between floor six and floor nine or whatever um, gets all these special benefits. So there's like a a happy hour that you can go to, it's just a little lounge on those floors and all these special things that you get. And we're like, wow, that's so nice, that's so kind, thank you. And we enjoyed ourselves, we had a great time. And the next morning, I had this plan that we were gonna go out to breakfast. And Emmy said, no, I think we get a free breakfast because they upgraded us. And I was like, I don't think we do. I, I think, you know, well, well, let's just go to this other breakfast. And, and this was the fight that we had on our first anniversary. And here's the problem with that. I was either ignorant or too stubborn to enjoy what was rightfully ours to, to enjoy because we did get free breakfast, by the way. And I think that's often true of us, that when it comes to enjoying the love of God, the infinite joy that comes along with it, that we're either ignorant or stubborn or we forget. We get too distracted from what's rightfully ours to enjoy, and we forget to enjoy the love of God. And so how do you do that? Well, first it says in here, actually, that you have to be born again. That's what it says in chapter 2, verse 29. It says, if, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. The only, way, the only way to know Christ is to have been born of him, to have been spiritually reborn. And the way the Bible talks about that is like a death to your old self and a resurrection, a rebirth of your new self. And this is what baptism symbolizes, what we're going to see in a minute after the service. We'll see a baptism. And and when he goes under the water, that symbolizes what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4. It's a a putting off of your old self, uh, the one that was corrupted with deceitful desires, and it's a putting on of your new self, one that's being renewed day by day to be like God. And so to be born again is to place your faith in Jesus Christ who died, who was buried, who was raised from the dead for the forgiveness of sins, and to offer us the promise of eternal life of full joy and freedom from sin. That's where enjoying the love of God starts. It starts with being born again. But if you're a Christian, notice how to continually enjoy the love of God. Actually, you abide, you continue, you fix your hope in him. The the original language, um, that word abide, it actually shows up seven times in these verses. In our translation, it uses the phrase in him or in you. But every time you see that word in the NIV, it's it's actually, it's the word abide, which we already said it means to dwell. It means to to move in. It means to take up residence. It means to remain. And this is where I think we end up continually falling back into sin is that we don't know what it is to abide. Here's how we think we, uh, we tend to think of the Christian life. Uh, We think of it like it's a, like it's a cell phone or an electric car. You know, we plug it in for a little while. We, we plug it in at church on Sunday, maybe in a midweek group, and then, then we unplug. We go about, you know, running on our battery. But what happens to spiritual is exactly what happens to your cell phone or your electric car. The, the battery runs out. But that's not what it means to abide. To abide is to remain. You know, the first time that Jesus uses that word, he, he talks about it like it's, like it's a branch of a grapevine. That once that branch is disconnected from the vine, it's it's dead. And so to abide is to remain connected permanently. And so excuse the cheese here, I'm sorry. But the Christian life is not battery-powered. It's hardwired. And I think the reason that we continually fall back into the same patterns of sins is that that we're going about our life as a Christian like it's battery-powered rather than hardwired. Let me just show you quickly what I mean. In verse 24, it says to let the message of the gospel remain in you, abide. And if it does, it says that you will remain, you will abide in the Son. And both times, it's that word abide. And then in verse 27, it says to remain in him. In verse 28, it says continue in him. And then in verse three, it says all who have this hope in him, purify themselves. Another translation says all who have this hope fixed on him, purify themselves. In other words, what that's getting at is the way to overcome the habitual sins that that keep getting you down is to fix your hope on Christ. And so do you see the language of of permanence here? Abide, remain, fix your hope. This is not a language of you know, plug it in for a while, and then you know, when the battery's drained. It's a permanence. It's hardwired. And here's what this looks like. There's another word, another idea that John points to us, and that is to see. It's to look. Three times John uses the word appear. And then in chapter 3, verse 2, he says, But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And what that's talking about is a future hope, that one day after we die or Christ returns, we will see him and we will become like him. But that future hope, which is talked about in the next verse, it can be a present reality. Do you want to overcome your sin? What this text is saying is continually look at Christ. See him. Fix your hope on him. Do you struggle with anger? You know, when you feel that anger is rising up in you, remember that in Jesus Christ, all of God's anger towards you is removed. Do you struggle with lust? Remember from our text last week, John chapter 2, verse 16, that everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. And in that moment, look to Christ who is pure. Do you struggle with pride? Remember that Jesus Christ humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. You struggle with greed, with covetousness. Remember that in Jesus Christ, you have been given abundantly, exceedingly otherworldly love that is lavished on you by God. And so do you see how that works? That the way, John says, to overcome your sin is to abide in Christ, to remain in him. And the way to abide, to remain, to have that permanence is to remember, to remember one specific truth, that Jesus, in Jesus Christ, your life is full that you can be filled with joy every hour of the day because you know, because you remember that you are loved. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you for the otherworldly love that has been lavished on us. Thank you for your love for us. Lord, help us to enjoy it. Help us to remember it.